1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. This will be the first of a two-part um, sermon on 1 Peter 1, 1 through 8. And I know, as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. And before we do, let's pray and ask the Lord to be present with us and to help us receive his word with faith and with love this evening. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent out your word already this morning and that you have blessed us by speaking to us and that again tonight you will be speaking. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would make us to hear your voice. You have said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. I call them by name and they follow me and no one can snatch them from me. And so we pray that you as the great shepherd of the sheep would speak to us this evening, Lord. Speak for your servants are listening. We pray that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would renew our minds and our wills. We pray that you would give us more affection for Christ, who though having not seen him, yet we love him. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and there we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being kept or guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that so that the tested genuineness of your faith, being precious, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God endures forever. Well, I think that it's a fairly safe assumption that in whatever field we find ourselves working, in whatever world we find ourselves exploring, we love to get hope from people who have bounced back. We love to get hope from people who have been become the underdog. We love to get hope from people who have failed and then have overcome those failures and have back, bounced back to success, whether it be in the financial world, whether it be in the world of teaching or art or music or theater or in any other sphere of life, we love to get hope from people who have failed because we know we have failed many times. And I have good news for you. If you are the kind of person that likes to get hope from people who have failed and who have bounced back from failure, the Apostle Peter is the perfect person for you. As I read the New, the New Testament, there is nobody that I resonate with so much as the Apostle Peter. There is no one that I feel so 
closely connected to in personality is the Apostle Peter. Maybe you felt that way. Peter is zealous. He's the first one to blurt out the answer. He's the first one to volunteer. He is the first one to say, I'll never do that. And let me do that. And I'll do that. And he is the first one to fall flat on his face. And the beauty of the Apostle Peter is that he is one that Jesus deconstructs and then puts back together and sends out to be the spokesman to give the greatest hope to those who are suffering the most in this world and who are most downcast and need the hope set before them, the hope of glory. And it's Peter, it's not Paul, and it's not John who is remembered as the apostle of hope. It's Peter that speaks that word so powerfully to us. I want to read this to you. One of my favorite writers says, about this letter. The wonderful thing about this letter is that when you feel as though you have messed up your Christian life, you don't instinctively go to someone who seems to have it all together and never faced any problems. You say to yourself, they wouldn't really understand. But to be able to go to counsel to someone who has struggled, someone who has been down, someone who's broken, but now so obviously has been remolded by Jesus Christ, not quite perfect, but full of the grace that sometimes comes from being a wounded Christian believer. And it's just as that, that Simon Peter writes to us to encourage us to live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you went through this epistle, you would find that Peter is everywhere speaking about hope. He is speaking about Christians setting their hope on the grace that is to come to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is speaking about the women of the Old Testament living in hope. Peter is in every way giving people hope because Peter was a man who had learned what it was to get gospel hope from Jesus Christ at those periods when everything was going wrong. Remember, it was Peter who at the moment when his Lord was suffering, let me say this this morning, you think you've messed up your life? You think you've messed up your Christian life, you think you've done some things that bring disgrace and shame to Jesus over the years, let me tell you that the Apostle Peter stood outside of the very palace where the Lord Jesus entered in on his suffering for the redemption of Simon Peter, and he denied him three times, and he even denied him with cursing to a little slave girl, to a little slave girl. So great is that sin that it's set out in every one of the Gospels, Jesus predicted it to Peter, and then when Peter was restored, he wept bitterly over the fact that he was ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet it's that Peter who writes this letter. It's that Peter who can speak a word of hope and restoration to people. It's that Peter who can build you up at those moments when you feel most cast down, and I think that Peter is writing this letter to give hope to a people who are struggling. Notice that when he begins to tell us about the recipients of this letter, he tells us that he's writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and Asia. They were Jews predominantly who had been converted to the Christian faith. They had been dispelled from their homeland. They had been spread out across the face of what is now Turkey. They had many of them had their homes plundered, much like what we read about the believers in the book of Hebrews. They had had their possessions taken from them. They had had everything stripped away from them. And yet they were a people who were rejoicing in Jesus Christ. And they were the people to whom Peter wrote to build them up and prod them on as they look forward to the glory that await them. John Calvin sums up the purpose of this letter 
<coughs> so well when he wrote in his preface to his commentary, the design of Peter in this epistle is to exhort the faithful to a denial of the world and a contempt of it, so that being freed from carnal affections and all earthly hindrances, they may with their whole soul aspire after the celestial kingdom of Christ, that by being elevated by hope, supported by patience, and fortified by courage and perseverance, they might overcome all kinds of temptations and pursue this course and practice throughout life. I think that's a beautiful description of the totality of what Peter is going to say in this epistle and what this epistle, what this letter has to say to you and me in 21st century America. Now, there are two things we want to look at this evening. First, we want to see how Peter reminds those to whom he's writing, who they are, what their identity is. And secondly, he wants to tell them what they have in Christ. And notice when he begins to describe them that he uses three descriptions. First, he tells them that they are elect. He reminds them that God has foreknown them and that he chose them before the foundations of the world. It's the exact thing that Paul tells the Ephesians when he says that you were chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world, that God had set his special affection and love on them. And that the first thing that you ought to know about yourself if you're a Christian is that your Christian life and experience was not based on your efforts. It's not based on your strivings. If it's based on your strivings, then at the end of the day, your hope is grounded on your performance. And then when you fail, there is no hope. But if it's rooted in the electing grace of God in Christ, and we fall back on the electing purposes of God, and we realize that God has set his special love on his people, and he has said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And if we remember with Gerhardus Voss that the, the greatest Proof that God will never stop loving you is that he never started loving you and that from all eternity he chose you in Christ and that he loved you with an everlasting love and that he sent the Redeemer to die for you. If you remember that everything is yours because God set his special mercy and grace upon you. If, if we remember that, that all the hope that we need for the Christian life flows from that. Notice the way that Peter speaks of the mercy of God in verse 3. When he comes to this great benediction and he says that God the Father has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, according to his abundant mercy. Peter sees, even in the identity of you as the elect, that God has this this rich and abounding mercy for his people. And that people that don't deserve that mercy get an overflow of mercy. And that in the ages to come, Paul would say, that God will break open on your heads his kindness in Christ Jesus. That that's what awaits the saints, not a certain fearful expectation of judgment, but a certain expectation of mercy. That the God who has already had mercy on you will have mercy on you every second of your life. And that means, and I think that Peter starts with this. Because when the dark days come, and they come, and when the trials come, and they come, and when the difficult circumstances come, and they most certainly will come at those moments, remembering that God has loved you with an everlasting love, and he has chosen you in Christ, and no one can stand against you. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will condemn? It is Christ who died. It is God who justifies. 
his people? Who will bring a charge against God's elect so that in the darkest night of the soul, the believer always has that to fall back on? He may not see any other indicators of God's mercy in his life. He may, like Job, have everything stripped away from him. He may have his health stripped away, his family stripped away, his possessions stripped away so that tangibly there is nothing in front of him that should say, God is for me. And yet the scriptures say that if you're in Christ Jesus, God has been for you from everlasting and he will be for you to everlasting. And we know that because Peter addresses believers as the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And then secondly, when Peter comes to tell us about our identity in Christ, he tells us that it's unto sanctification of the Spirit, that God the Father is committed to sanctifying us. The purpose of this letter is that the believers would have joy and hope in the midst of difficulty, but it's also that they wouldn't cave into the world when the pressures come down, when all the, the, when the world with all its allurements is pressing down upon you, that the believer would not give into that because the believer has been purchased by the blood of Jesus to be sanctified. God is guaranteed that you're in G- if you're in Jesus Christ, that the blood that justifies you and forgives you is the same blood that sanctifies you. You have been chosen by God, Paul says, to be holy and blameless before him in love. That's the goal of our lives. The goal of our lives is that we would be freed more and more from sin and that we would be conformed more and more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And here's the glorious thing. You, if you're in Christ, are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with his blood. And so the third thing that Paul tells us is that we are people who who have been washed clean. We have been cleansed by the Lord Jesus. I love in the upper room when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and Peter says to him, Lord, you'll never wash me. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. The greatest need that men and women have in this world, the greatest need that you have is that our souls would have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, that the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling, the ashes of the heifers could never make the conscience of those who approach perfect, but the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus gives us no more consciousness of sins. No more consciousness of sins. Jesus Christ has already cleansed you. He said you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Brothers and sisters, listen to me very carefully. The biggest thing that you have to do in your soul is to wrestle with, with the reality of believing that you have already been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Because the evil one loves to come in. He loves to accuse. He loves to say, how could you do that? How could someone who claims the name of Jesus do that? He loves to stand before God and accuse you day and night. But like Joshua the high priest, the Lord comes and he says, I have taken away their filthy garments and I have clothed him with righteous robes. You have been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. I want to say something this morning. There is nothing in the description of the saints that Peter is setting out here that you have done to contribute to that. Isn't that marvelous? The whole whole identity of the believer 
is everything God has done from election to sanctification by the spirit, washing in the blood. And then Peter will talk about to the glorification on that final day. There's nothing that you have done to contribute to that. Notice what Peter says. He says, he says for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with his blood. And then he gives this great entry blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the first thing that Peter tells us is that we need to know our identity. You know, it's interesting that Peter is about to talk to a people who are being greatly persecuted, probably under Nero. They are suffering in ways that we can't even imagine when you read some of the early church historians, the things that were done to them, the way the city was made, uh, was lit up by the bodies of believers being burned at stakes, the horrific persecution and turmoil that fell on first century Christians. And Peter is writing to some of those very Christians who had been dispelled and dispersed. They had become exiles. And yet he is writing them, reminding them what they are. He's writing and telling them of what has happened to them and what their identity is and that their identity is not first and foremost that they have been persecuted. Their identity is that they are elect that they have been chosen unto sanctification and sprinkling in the blood, and then finally that they are exiles, that this is not their home. You know, it's interesting to me that when you read commentators on this, they'll often say, Peter's not talking about them being spiritual sojourners. He's not talking about them being pilgrims the way the Bible talks about believers everywhere else. They're just physical exiles. I think that's nonsense. Their physical situation mirrored and was an analogy to the spiritual reality of every believer in this world. Every believer in this world is to think of themselves as a stranger and a pilgrim here. That's the big way that Peter speaks to these suffering saints. In fact, he'll tell them later in this book, he'll say, I beg you as pilgrims and sojourners. Now, here's the remarkable thing. If you're in Christ, and if that's true for you, then you were in the company of Noah, who was a stranger and an exile in this world. You were in the company of Abraham, who is the archetypal stranger and pilgrim and sojourner. The whole history of Abraham, picking up his tent and moving, not knowing where God was taking him, dwelling, as Gerhardus Voss says, as a king in a movable tent, looking for a city that had foundation, whose builder and maker was God. And that's the reality for every true believer in this world. This is not our home. How we need to be reminded of that repeatedly. This is not our home. Here we have no continuing city. You know, every time you watch a movie in which you see a war that just destroys some country, every time you see on television the reality of the world just being destroyed. I watched the other night um, a documentary about the tsunami in Japan in 2010 that just obliterated cities. And I watched as one of these, um, one of the elderly residents who had spent his whole life in this small fishing town in Japan that had been wiped out, walked through the remains that looked like a, a, a nuclear uh, fallout had happened. And he walked around looking for his house. And he couldn't find his house because everything had been destroyed by the tsunami. And he finally came to a spot where he said, yeah, I think this is my home. I think this is my home. And the believer 
is someone who in this world should look exactly like that man, not able to see a permanent dwelling place here. This is not our home. And we become far too comfortable. And these believers had become comfortable here and now they're suffering and now they're having their possessions taken away and Peter said they're being grieved by various trials and so he comes to comfort them with the good news of who they are. You know, one of the most wonderful thoughts to me about sojourning in this world is that the greatest sojourner that ever lived was not some great martyr and it wasn't even Abraham, it was the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus Christ moved around in the very land where Abraham was called to pitch his tents and to take his tent up and to move around. It was the same place where the son of Abraham lived. And it was the son of Abraham that said, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Don't feel sorry for Jesus. He did that for our redemption. He did that as an example, and he did it as the savior. He said, the son of man has nowhere to to lay his head. He was the ultimate pilgrim and sojourner. I want to read to you a beautiful quote from a hymn by a man named Henry Van Dyke. Thou wayfaring Jesus, a pilgrim and stranger, exiled from heaven by love at thy birth, exiled again from thy rest in the manger, a fugitive child mid the perils of earth. Cheer with thy fellowship all who are weary, wandering far from the land that they love. Guide every heart that is homeless and dreary, safe to its home in thy presence above. I think that he captures so well the thought that we ought to latch on to, that our experience as exiles. Peter actually speaks to the church as being exiled, exiled from their homeland, exiled into the world exiled into a foreign country, no matter where we live on the face of this earth, it is not our home. And then secondly, Peter tells them what they have in Christ. He's told them their identity in Christ. And now he tells them about the blessings they have in Christ. Notice verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now, one of the things that's remarkable about this letter is that Peter doesn't lead with pessimism. He could very easily say, oh, the world's so terrible. Look how awful these people are that are persecuting you. Look how terrible they are. Let's get together and pray that the governments will change their laws and that they will stop these wicked people and that we will again show that we are the people of God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't lead with pessimism. He leads with optimism. He leads with the hope of what we have through the resurrection of Jesus. At ground zero, in the Christian experience, the resurrection of Jesus is everything. At ground zero, in the experience of the Christian, the resurrection of Jesus is everything. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said that the resurrection of Jesus brings everything to us. The resurrection of Jesus brings everything to us. Notice 
What Peter does, he burst out with praise in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he first exalts in the, in the Father. He praises God for who he is, that he is the God and the Father of Jesus who would be raised from the dead. He, he teaches the people who are about to suffer many great trials that the whole of the Christian life ought to be driven by hope and by praise. I remember as a young Christian... I heard Ligon Duncan at a conference in Greenville, South Carolina, and he was preaching on the parallel praise in Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he told a story about a woman who had lost a child. And as if I remember the story correctly, as she told this story, that she said the only thing that got her through the grief and the sorrow that she had was that she was in the regular practice of praising God when times were good. And how can I not praise him now that times are difficult? And I'll never forget Ligon Duncan saying, if we are not in the practice of praising God when times are good, we will never praise him when times are difficult. You see, Peter was one who had learned. He had learned to praise God the Father, for the enormous blessings he had in Christ. He had eyes to see past the circumstances. How desperately we need eyes to see past the circumstances. And you know what? That's supernatural. Um, With Jesus to Simon Peter, we can say about this, that flesh and blood does not reveal that to us, but our Father who is in heaven. That until he opens our eyes to see the greatness of what we have in Christ, until he makes us see what we have awaiting us in glory because of the resurrection of Jesus, we'll never get to the point where even in the midst of the greatest trials and difficulties, our souls would cry out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter sees... In the resurrection of Jesus, the whole world of hope for the believer. He sees in the empty tomb. Remember, it was Peter that ran with John to the tomb. It was Peter that didn't believe the women's testimony. It was Peter that stooped down and saw the linen clothes folded, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. He saw them neatly laid in a place by themselves, and he believed and he realized, and hope filled his soul. Because he realized that if Jesus was risen, that everything Jesus said would be his, and everything that the Old Testament had foreshadowed and talked about, about the hope of glory, was secured in the resurrection of Jesus. And that means that there is no situation that we can face in life, there is no situation, no challenge, and no trial that can trump the hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus. And if we don't feel it, And if we don't know it, it's probably because we don't believe it. And that everything that Peter says is only and ever experienced by faith. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Though you do not yet see him, you believe in him. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You see, Peter understood that he could see by faith and and that those to whom he was writing could see by faith 
the invisible Lord Jesus Christ. They could see him. They could see him crucified and they could see him risen and they could see him ascended and they could see him reigning. They could see him by faith sitting at the right hand of the Father, ordering all the events of their life. They could see him there ever living to make intercession for them. They could see him with the eyes of faith so that as they saw in front of them all of the challenges and the opposition and people saying to them, you can't serve Jesus, you must serve Caesar. And when they had everything in visible sight in front of them against what the scripture said, by faith they believed in the unseen Christ, and they believed that he was risen from the dead, and they had a hope that no one could take away from them. I had a professor in seminary who said to us once, and he was was reflecting on the words that our faith being much more precious than gold that perishes. And he said to us, the most precious thing that you possess is faith in Jesus Christ. The most precious thing that you possess is faith in Jesus Christ. I want to read to us as we come to an end of this first part to this these verses a description of what the Christian is according to Peter. I think this really sums up everything that he says in these verses kind of a bird's eye view, and what we want to take home tonight. Again, Gerhardus Voss said, the Christian is a man, according to Peter, who lives with his heavenly destiny ever in full view. His outlook is not bounded by the present life and the present world. He sees that which is and that which is to come in their true proportions and in their proper perspective. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present, but in the future. Hope, not possession, is that which gives tone and color to his life. His is the frame of mind of the heir who knows himself entitled to large treasures upon which he will enter at a definite point in time. Treasures which will first enable him to become a man and develop his powers to their full capacity, and every one of whose thoughts, therefore, projects itself into the period when he shall become of age and enjoy the fruition of his hope. That is one of the best descriptions of everything Peter's trying to capture, that the the believer is one who does not judge and does not consciously live in light of the present, but a Christian is one who is ever living in light of what he knows is coming because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There is a glory awaiting us. There is a glory awaiting us. You know, when I look at my own life and I consider my own inner thoughts and I think about the way I re- react with, with circumstances in life and I think how easily I am I am moved and controlled by circumstances. That happens to us over and over and over. And it's this Peter who tells us in his second letter, even though you know these things, we need to be reminded of them. We need to be stirred up by way of reminder that you have an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away 
reserved for you in heaven who are being kept by faith, by God, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. Beloved, that, that is the reality for you. Whatever your circumstances in life right now, they are not what identify you. You are elect. You are sanctified in the spirit. You are an exile traveling to a celestial city. You have been begotten again to a living hope in Jesus Christ through his resurrection. And you have an inheritance that will never fade away waiting for you in glory. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in life. This is not false hope, by the way. This is the surest and the realest and the truest thing that your ears could ever hear in this life. Jesus Christ is risen. And because he's risen, all of this comes to us by faith in the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear... Let him hear this evening what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would make us a people who not only understand these things intellectually, but that know these things experientially. We pray, Father, that you would increase our faith, that it would be said of us that though we do not see your Son, yet we love him, and that yet, yet though we do not now see him, yet we believe and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Father, we pray that you would make us a people of hope. We pray that it would be evident in our homes and in this community and in our conversations that we are hoping to be with the Lord Jesus in glory. Father, have mercy on us. Make us to know more of that abundant mercy that you have already bestowed on us in Christ. We pray that you would help us to face the challenges of a new week with great joy and great hope, knowing that you have conquered and that you are coming again to receive us to glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.